Thanks for tuning in to the Thirst for More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thirst for More podcast was created to help strength and conditioning coaches, personal trainers, fitness enthusiasts, and anyone that loves lifting heavy shit all be connected under one roof. We take deep dives into coaching, programming and training, running gyms, nutrition, and overall improving your knowledge in the field of strength and conditioning. If you're new here, I'm glad you're able to tune in and hope you can just take away one awesome piece of information today to help you along with your journey. If you're a returning supporter, I appreciate you being along for the ride. Now let's dive into today's episode. On episode 28 of the Thirst More podcast, I sit down and do a solo episode on long-term athletic development. We talk about what it is, how the model works, and how we can use it to make the best version of athletes that we possibly can. In today's culture, heavily driven by sports, specialization, and travel sports, long-term athletic development is more important now than ever. I take some research here, break it all down for you, discuss kind of what we need to do to get athletes to be the best versions of themselves, but also why we're seeing increases in injuries, burnout, and overall just decreased health of children, especially at young ages. I hate to admit it, but I see kids coming in with overuse injuries all the time in my facility, and it's one of the things that drives me nuts about the way the current sports culture is. So if you're really heavily invested into long-term athletic development, give this episode a listen. I think you're going to take away a lot of great, good things, actionable ways you can make a difference, hopefully in your community, whether you're a parent, coach, strength conditioning professional, or physical therapist. At the end of the day, we all have to come together to improve this model, make sure that we get the most out of it, and we're making the biggest impact that we can on athletes. So sit down, enjoy this good episode on long-term athletic development, and I'll catch you at the next episode. What's up, Brandon here from Thirst for More Podcast, and today we've got a solo episode with myself, and we're going to talk about long-term athletic development. So I'm working, just to give you guys a heads up, I'm working on getting more guests. I've actually got three people lined up. The recordings are actually scheduled. It's just a matter of getting them actually recorded and on. So uh, just the way dates have kind of worked, I had to film a solo episode, so enjoy today's episode of just talking about long-term athletic development. So I've got a lot of information here. And we're briefly going to try to discuss some terms. We're going to talk about why this is beneficial for athletics uh, kids and overall just improving the athletics that we have available to us and, you know, doing what's best for kids and what's eventually going to be future adults. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about burnout. We're going to talk about how you can use this model to ultimately make athletes better. So whether you're a parent, you're a coach, you're a strength and conditioning specialist, you're a physical therapist, this should benefit you to some degree, okay? So I'm not going to say everything's going to apply to you, but just find what works best for you and apply it as needed, okay? So we're first going to talk, just discuss and talk about what long-term athletic development is and why it's important. So first of all, this is kind of like a United States thing. You know, Other countries have other models and methods they use, but the term long-term athletic development model is kind of specific towards the United States. So if you happen to be in a different country listening, just understand that this is the way that we're trying to look at building athletes from a long-term perspective. And I think the most thing that we try to make sure we understand here is that we get kids at the youth level. So this is really focusing on kids ages 3 to 14. Once they get past that, then we start looking towards the quote-unquote specialization 
picking one, maybe two sports to really focus on, to try to excel at, be our best, and, and give them the correct training. But really, up until age 14, doing what we can in a very wide genre is what's best for them based upon the current research. And I think if you talk to any coach, they would probably agree with you that just being athletic overall at that age sets you up for success once you get to that high school level and start having to pick and focus on sports. Because I think one thing that's important here, and especially in the United States, is that certain sports at the high school level fall during certain seasons. So it's going to be very difficult for you to run cross country, play soccer, and do football. You can't do all three of those sports. They're in the same season, so you're going to have to pick one, maybe two if you're lucky. You might get a kid that you know technically plays soccer and kicks the field goals during the football season. That's very realistic. But you're not going to have a wide receiver actually playing uh, soccer in a, in a good competitive spot. So um, what we've got here now is we're just going to kind of talk about teaching the knowledge to the coaches. So I think the big thing is that we've got to understand for this model – Parents usually are coming in doing this as volunteers, especially at the five, six, seven-year-old range. Parents are just doing what's best for the kids. So they have a good opportunity to have fun, play the sport, you know, learn about teamwork, sharing, um, you know, all the intangibles that come with sports, all the great things that really come out of sports uh, outside of the competition piece. And so I think understanding that most of the people that are doing the coaching at those younger ages are probably not well-versed in the long-term athletic development model. They're not informed in terms of performance and body position and terminology. And so I think if we can get coaches up to speed on that, um, even if it's just a one-day course to briefly talk about these things, I think that's incredibly important. But, you know, the first thing we want to try to do is try to talk about the disconnect between athleticism and athletic development. So the reason I want to say that is as a coach – we want kids that are the best athletes first. And, you know, athletic develop means, development means building on the current skill sets that we already have in place and amplifying them. So let's take a basketball player, for example, little Johnny. Johnny has done nothing but play basketball his whole life, and so he's basically done nothing but athletic development for basketball. So he's mainly probably focused on vertical jumping, shuffling, and shooting. Those are probably and dribbling a basketball, right? But if it comes to rotation, kicking, um, you know, climbing, um, if you think about wrestling or MMA kind of stuff, things like shooting, carrying people, physical contact, taking hits with football, um, dribbling a soccer ball, anything like that, swinging a racket, um, throwing a baseball, any of those kind of motions, swimming, being in a pool, all those motions are not obviously on a basketball court, right? So if you put that basketball player into that framework, they're probably not going to be very good, right? They're, they're just not. They've not done it. They've not practiced it. That's why they're not going to be a good swimmer or you know, a good wrestler. But if you take young kids that have been subjected to a lot of those sports over the course of 10 years, say they start when they're four or five, by the time they're 14, chances are teaching that kid how to do a jump shot, how to do a layup, and focusing on the performance indicators that would be better for that that kid's going to be set up for success the most because he's going to just grasp on everything. He's more athletic. So we've developed more athleticism versus actually having athletic development, which is focusing on those key dynamics to make an athlete really good. Um, so 
I think understanding those first is is very important. We want to develop athleticism at this age, that three to 14. And three to me is really low, but kids just start moving around, right? They're, they're hard to wrangle at that age. They want to climb on stuff and jump and throw and go outside and kick balls and whatever. That's good. Let them do that. And that's why I think starting at a young age like that, that's kind of why we want to look at that three-year-old age. Let your kids go be kids, okay? Don't get tied up into really focused sports at that age. And that's part of the long-term athletic development model there. Um, so one of the things that we've got here is that um, sport participation is actually, I got down here is the countermeasure to a sedentary lifestyle. And um, it's, which is obviously not good for kids. Okay. So sport participation is just to get kids moving, keep them healthy, keep them active. So they're not sedentary, get them away from screens, TVs, video games, get them involved, but also the social constructs that come with sports is awesome as well. So I think you're just looking at creating overall better people, which is ideally what we want. Long-term athletic model, long-term athletic development model sees that, respects that, and says that, hey, this is an important factor, regardless of whether you go on to win games, lose games, play sports past 16, 17 years old. Doesn't matter. We want to do what's best for people. And I think that's also, uh, you know, the right thing to do. That's morally the right thing to do. Um, but obviously, uh, individuals experience failed attempts to participate in organized sports because there's too much emphasis placed on competition with little attention on developing proper athleticism or appropriate movement skills. This is where the long-term athletic development model is trying to say, hey, we need to stop this. You know, this model is aimed to get rid of this to where there's too much emphasis on winning at that three to 14 year age group versus not trying to focus on developing better athletes. Um, so you see this all the time. I see it all the time. I see it in my own facility, 10, 11, 12 year old kids going to do multiple tournaments on the weekends, coming back, winning this tournament, winning that tournament. Guess what? There's so many freaking tournaments with so many different kids there. You should win. If you're in the powerlifting realm like I am, you know that the ways to get a first place medal in powerlifting is thousands and thousands of different sub genres, um, classifications, categories, divisions, whatever you want to call it. There's thousands of them. Getting a first place or even a state record in powerlifting means nothing. It's not significant. I don't care what anybody says. Congratulations, you know, not that I'm not happy for you. If that's something you're happy about, good for you. But at the end of the day, statistically, that shouldn't be hard. Okay. So we need to make sure that as coaches, and what we're trying to do here is that we're not trying to have too much emphasis being on competition. Now, I do think it's important that kids learn to win and they learn to lose. Learning to hang your head high, congratulate the person that beat you and say, hey, good job. You won and hold yourself to good standards, I think that's good to teach kids. Obviously, when they're really young, you know, it's a little bit harder to do. But as you get to that middle school age and, you know, that 11, 12, 10, or I'm sorry, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, you got to have good composure. And I think that's also important. So, you know, there is some competition involved. Just understand that that shouldn't be the emphasis at that age. Winning and losing is not the important part. Developing the proper athleticism is ideally what we want. So when they get to the high school level, then that's where the emphasis on competition kind of comes in. And then uh, the other thing we're starting to see is that individuals with limited sports and movement skills often stop, stop participating just in general. Okay. You know, they, they don't develop those good fundamental movements and they don't look athletic and then they don't have success and then they don't want to do it. 
So, you know, the more athletic you are, it seems to find that the research here, based off what I'm using here as the NSEA, is my kind of template and guideline of where I'm kind of pulling this information from. Um, I'll, I'll link some of this in the bottom uh, in, the, in the show notes if you would really want to. Uh, but the research is showing that by having limited sports and movement skills, participation drops. So the more we can open that up, the more they will likely play, the longer they will play, and that's good. We want to keep kids in sports longer. Uh, but in turn, this neglected often leads to decreased interest in any type of physical activity. And to me, that's the key point here, is that it's not just that they stop playing baseball. It's if they stop playing baseball, they may stop playing basketball. They may stop playing track. They might stop playing soccer. And then we see all physical activity go downhill, and then we see the health of people go downhill. And I think you've been able to see this in the past 20 years or so, that the obesity rates continue to climb among people. And I'm not saying the sport, it, it, you know, decreasing the amount of kids playing baseball and soccer or whatever is why it's happening. But I do think that we, we want to see those obesity numbers decline. So the more kids we can keep active, build them healthy lifestyles early, the more damage control we can play in the future. So I think that's kind of important as well. But it also says here that the result is a failure to learn to develop physical literacy or proper athletic movement in a sequential and progressive manner. A sedentary lifestyle then follows. Sedentary living causes such health problems, obviously, as obesity, diabetes, high blood, sugar, high blood pressure, um, cardiovascular disease, and any other chronic diseases that evolve from lifelong problems starting in childhood. So that's what we're trying to combat here with that is just keep kids moving, keep them healthy, keep them active. And we can prevent some of these, which then gives us better qualities of life for these individuals long term. So we're thinking about their health as well as we're thinking about their sports. But applied to athletics, these factors result in increased injury incidences and rates and limited skill development. So from a sports performance perspective or an athletic perspective, this is why this matters is because it's showing increased injury risk and uh, incidence and then limited skill development. And as strength and conditioning coaches that push for long-term athletic development, I think we know this. This is why we promote playing multiple sports year-round, getting involved in a quality strength and conditioning facility program, something like that, and doing things physically outside with your parents, with your friends, what I like to call play. Things that are just completely unstructured, they're just out there to have a good time. And, you know, those things alone will increase um, the skill development but also then decrease the risk of injury long-term. I think that's important. So to continue on, this says these musculoskeletal injury factors are a result of overall low strength levels, incorrect landing mechanics, incorrect deceleration techniques, ligament laxity, muscle tightness, overly developed quadriceps, and over-reliance on a particular limb. These factors often lead to low back and limb misalignment or mechanics due to poor recruitment and control of glutes in the posterior chain. Now that's a lot to absorb. So let's kind of break that down, but basically taking what I said there and really focusing on where the NSCA um, and the long-term athletic development is seeing these issues. Um, let's kind of go through each one of them here that, you know, they're seeing overall low strength levels. And I think that's fair. I see kids on a daily basis that cannot do bodyweight squats. They can't do bodyweight lunges. And just, you know, our youngest age group that we take is 10. And so I believe at 10 years old, they should be able to do a split squat and a bodyweight squat. It doesn't have to look perfect, but they should have good enough proprioception and movement qualities to be able to do those exercises. I think that's very fair. And I think, you know, the push-up's another one, but 
really depends on maturation, but we'll just say from their knees. Every kid should be able to do a good push-up from their knees, and we don't see that very well common uh, either. Um, incorrect landing mechanics, no question. See that all the time. Knees buckling in, chest falling forward. That's very common. If you're in this industry, you see that all the time with kids. Um, incorrect deceleration techniques, that's also very common. They're never taught how to stop. Kids are only just taught to run straight forward. Uh, learn to drop your center of mass, keep your chest tall, actually decelerate your body. I think it's incredibly important. Uh, ligament laxity, muscle tightness, you know, those probably really just come from a sedentary lifestyle, sitting in a computer like I am right now, or, you know, constantly involved on your phone. That's probably the case there. Um, overdeveloped quadriceps. So the way I look at this is, you know, not a strong posterior chain. If you're sitting down in a chair all the time, you're probably using your quads to get up and down. You're not doing anything that's truly going to develop your posterior chain because you're not doing a lot of sport, you're not being outside. So therefore, again, you know, recruitment control of the glutes and hamstrings aren't there as much in kids. Um, and then over-reliance on a particular limb. So if you constantly do stuff with your right hand or your right leg, then you become very dominant on that side. Now, obviously, we write, we write with you know, utensils right or left, use our phone right or left, watch on right or left. That's going to happen. But, I mean, it shouldn't be, like, magnified. I guess is what we're trying to get here. And then this is the key thing here is that it leads to low back and limb issues. And then that's what we start to see with kids that are in middle school is they start to have low back issues. And that should be a big red flag. You shouldn't be 10, 11, 12, 13 years old and have low back issues. That just shouldn't happen. I, I don't really think there's even really a need to explain why that should be the case. Um, I think it's kind of self-obvious, but that I think goes to show you why the early specializations not working so well and kids not being active in sports, not being active outside is leading to other negative consequences uh, physically. Um, so the big thing here that we're trying to get is trying to get this paradigm to shift that we get to a long-term athletic development. And this is an uphill battle, very uphill battle um, because so many sports right now are basically going year round. If you look at baseball, softball, soccer, basketball, um, swimming, wrestling. These are essentially year-round sports now. There is a couple little spots here and there where it's down periods or maybe they're not doing stuff. But this is a, essentially a, a year-round thing now. And I think we need to get away from that. So, you know, trying to get parents to understand that, hey, it's cold outside. We shouldn't be having indoor baseball practice or indoor softball practice or indoor soccer practice, right? That's This is an outdoor sport. It's too cold to be outside. Do something else. That's a great time for basketball, wrestling, swimming, you know? So use that to kind of help use the way you discuss and talk to parents. Um, but I think the other thing here is we're trying to get local youth sports programs to understand and implement a long-term athletic development model. And that's where this is hard. So the more educated we can be, the more we can pass on to parents and other coaches on your coaches, the better off that we will be. Um, so um, this is obviously all theoretical, but um, according to Bali, this theoretical model can, when properly implemented, provide a change in sports programs and athletic development by identifying gaps and providing guidelines for movement problem solving, improving performance at various stages of athletic development, and outlining a framework to develop physical literacy, physical fitness for life, and competitive athletics. And that and to me is incredibly important. Right now, 
the way youth athletics is going, the only thing they care about is competitive athletics. They don't care about um, developing physical literacy, physical fitness for life, or the stages that come with that as a young kid grows and matures before our eyes once they hit puberty and all that stuff. All they care about is the competitive athletics from ages five up. That's why there's seven U, eight U baseball teams. To me, that's stupid. Just throw the kids together, play some baseball on the weekends and have fun. Don't worry about traveling. But this long-term athletic development model is clearly about trying to develop all of that. And I think that's obviously honorable. That's great. That's what it should be about. And then in result, or I'm sorry, in return, excuse me, we get competitive athletics on top of it. There's an added benefit to everything else that comes with it. Um, but a long-term commitment to physical literacy, proper training to improve athleticism, and sport skill development is vital to produce optimal athletic potential. Proper training and athletic development require time. Moreover, a paradigm shift needs to occur regarding the pace and process of athletic development. This paradigm shift has its own language. Physical, physical literacy is a fundamental and valued human capability that can be described as a disposition acquired by human individuals encompassing the motivation, confidence, and physical competence that establishes purposeful physical activity as an integral part of their lifestyle. Athleticism is the result of athletic movement skills development that involves learning proper techniques for agility, balance, coordination, flexibility, metabolic training, power, reaction time, speed, strength, and strength endurance. That's a lot to take in right there, but the big thing that we can summarize this is that we need kids to have more physical literacy in all facets, and coaches need to have that physical literacy too for this to work, and then also for people to understand that, hey, it's not baseball season. We're not going to play baseball. We're going to do something else. Hey, it's not swimming season. We're going to do something else. Hey, it's not basketball season. We're going to do something else. And that takes, like I said, getting that paradigm to shift, to think differently that that's the better way, both physically, mentally, um, emotionally, for kids. That's going to be very hard because everybody else is trying to do all the skills, 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 skills. They're not doing anything to develop the athleticism. And so we've got, it's going to take time to get those kids that focus on the athleticism and then absorb the skills to pass those kids that just focus on skill before you start to see a change. And that's going to be hard. It's going to be an uphill battle, but that's what we're trying to get out of this. And then obviously all those athleticism things that we talked about. I mean, think about what a lot of kids are missing when we talk about balance, coordination, flexibility, metabolic training, reaction time. These are things that get missed in a lot of sports because they do things that may not require those. And then therefore, when they're not required or you're not doing them, they just kind of get dulled and dampered down. So when you do need them, they're no longer there or you're so far behind. But if you can develop that big, strong base, then it's a little bit easier to do. So the next thing, uh, we're going to talk about talent development here. Um, and I'm going to kind of read some of this as well. Uh, from this, this all the scholarly article, this piece here, just so we can kind of be on the same page. And, you know, I don't want to, um, I want to summarize what these um, specialists are saying so that we can kind of discuss it. And I'd also don't want to take their, their words um, out of context. So uh, scientific research concludes that it takes eight to 12 years of training 
for a talented athlete to reach elite levels. It can also be argued that it takes that long, if not longer, to produce quality youth coaches who understand how to develop proper skills in children. There are no shortcuts to athletic success. Unfortunately, some coaches and parents overemphasize competition while at the same time approach proper movement skills and development to improve athleticism with little to no interest. A well-planned and balanced schedule of training, practice, competition, and recovery will enhance optimum development through the individual's athletic career. Often, change for implementation of long-term athletic development models is difficult because program administrators and coaches are uninformed and at times uh, reticent to such change. I think that's supposed to be resist, resistant to those change. I'm sorry. It looks like it's a typo there, so I apologize for that. Um, moreover, parental perspectives and involvement is unresponsive, so games versus appropriate training and practice time. The modern sports culture is misleading. Everyone is an expert, immediate gratification, and entitlement. Um, and the early specialization training model for sport, team sports is inadequate, making long-term athletic development implementation difficult. This hits the nail on the head. This is an amazing two paragraphs, right? I, I, I wish I could have said I wrote that. Um, I, I think if we took that and we could get every parent to understand these two paragraphs, more so than anything else, even coaches, to understand these two paragraphs, long-term athletic development would see leaps and bounds improvement as long as there would be actionable change, right? Actual change is going to be kind of an important piece here. But I, the thing that I found interesting was the fact that it, you know we know that it's going to take eight to 12 years of training uh, for athletes to reach elite levels. That's not really too groundbreaking to me. You know, you're not surprised. It takes time. You know, you always hear the 10 year rule or the 10,000 hour rule. You know, we all hear that um, little quip, uh, whether that's true or not, just depends. But we know that's going to take time. What's more interesting is that it takes that long, if not longer, to make quality coaches to understand and how to develop these proper skills in children. So that is something that we're kind of missing, especially in the um, the travel ball era that we're in with the specialization, is finding quality coaches who actually have 10, 12, 15 years um, of understanding how to develop those proper skills in children. Okay. I want to make sure I'm specific in children because sure, you can take somebody that used to play in the MLB or the NBA. They know the skills. If they didn't know the skills. They wouldn't have played in the MLB or the NBA, right? Or even triple A ball or G league or, you know, whatever, semi-pro football or XFL, whatever it is. Those people clearly know the X's and O's of the sport they played in. They've been around a lot of coaches. They learned a lot of good ways to break that down and make it more digestible. But do they know how to develop this in children? So that's where I think we're also running into an issue as a industry that's, you know, obviously strength conditioning, but we're talking about the sports industry in general is that we're looking for the elite people. The people that played it at that level, we want to take them and have them be a coach. I think that's very cool. I, I think you're seeing that in the, the NCAA right now with football, uh, maybe even a little basketball. They're trying to find ex-alums, ex-good players to be the coaches. The thing is they can relate with their players a little more because they're working with young adults, and they are adults, but young adults that 
looked up to them, watched them play, and the lingo can kind of coincide. They can say something um, and, and stick through. But if you try to take somebody like that to teach a seven-year-old how to play football, there's going to be a lot lost in translation there. You know, that that pro player may not remember what they need to do at seven years old to get them ready to play in middle school, which then to play in high school. So I think that part of teaching parents that it takes time to understand how to develop these skills, especially when we're talking about speed, power, agility, coordination, balance, and all those things I mentioned above earlier, you know, they don't understand how to do that. You know, that's something that like my job, we learn in school, we have to take exams over, you get certified in this stuff, you practice it, you intern. We have years of working at this. So we kind of have the understanding of the science. Now we got to, you know, get that to the child level. Um, but if you don't understand that stuff, you just, I just always do what I did. And that's where we're kind of running the problem is doing what you used to do when clearly research is showing that we need to take a, a different stance on this. Um, but obviously, like, I, I really like the fact that there's no shortcuts to the athletic success, um, you know, that the coaches and parents are clearly oversizing competition, while at the same time, they're approaching proper movement skills and development to prove athleticism with little or no interest. So again, you know, they're, they're looking at winning competitions and they're not caring about trying to improve athleticism as much. They care about winning or picking the good kid that's already more athletic and not developing the kid. Um, I've got a good story here. I'll talk about that here in a little bit. Um, but, and then obviously trying to implement a change of getting people to buy into this long-term athletic development model because it's hard because they're uninformed, because the perspective involvement of current travel sports is making it more challenging, that the game is more appropriate than the training and the practice time. As Alan Iverson said, would say, we're talking about practice, fam. And I loved Alan Iverson. Anybody that knows me knows I'm a big, big AI fan. My second favorite player all time behind Michael Jordan. But we're talking about practice. But at this age, we got to talk about practice, okay? And then, obviously, that the modern sports culture is that Everyone's an expert. You know, everybody's got something special, unique. They really know what they're talking about. That's not the, not the case. The cream of the crop rises to the top all the time, but people are plucking people at the bottom and trying to start their own new thing. That there's immediate gratification and entitlement. That's becoming very prevalent as well in these sports. So, um, you know, there, this was a really good two paragraphs. We dove into a lot of this here really quickly the past couple of minutes, but this is kind of what we've got to do as professionals to break through here. And so we've, we've, we've got to try to develop our youth coaches better. Um, and we've got to try to help kids understand this. So put this on a level that they understand that, Hey, this is what's not only best for you right now. This is what's best for you in the future. And this is what's best for your professional career. If that's ultimately what you want to do, this is what it's going to take. All, everyone else is doing all this specialization stuff. But if you take this model and use it, this should set you up for success better in the long run, giving you hopefully that edge. I think that's the best way to sell it. That's how I try to sell it to parents is this is the edge that nobody else is taking, but you could be the trendsetter. You could be the kid that's playing three sports year round, you know, cycling through, doing a strength and conditioning program, taking rest, eating well, doing the little things, and watch how that comes to help you when you're in high school. Again, it's not going to fit in that immediate gratification box, um, but you will see the long-term benefits.
And then, you know, I, I got on here too, uh, the importance of coach education. I kind of just went into that one, you know, got ahead of myself there. Um, but obviously the early specialization um, sees increased dropout rates, overuse injuries, early burnout, overemphasis on sports-specific preparation, um, and not skill develop or you know, basic movement skill uh, development. That is the problem with the specialization. And, you know, we don't want that. That's why we're trying to push long-term athletic development because we are seeing too many kids have overuse injuries at 10, 11, 12 years old. I see way too many kids in my own business that are coming to me because of these issues, shoulders, elbows, knees, hips, backs. They're, they're all literally breaking down right in front of my eyes because they're all they're doing is throwing a baseball or softball, swinging a bat or, um, shooting a basketball, living on the basketball court. You know, they're not doing anything else. And we're starting to see those overuse injuries really creep up. And that's making my job have to figure out, okay, how can we use strength conditioning methods to help reduce these overuse injuries from happening, but also help get them back on the field court pitch faster. And I don't want that to be my job. I want to make athletes bigger, faster, stronger, more explosive, more resilient. I don't want to have to fix them and then try to do that. You know, that's, that's putting three, four, five, six months of work in before if we would just came to, to us at the beginning, maybe we could have avoided this or just playing different sports. This could have been avoided. Um, but again, that, that we'll get to some more on that in here in a little bit, but the coach education is the foundation of long-term athletic development. We've got to educate coaches. So that's my one takeaway here. If you're listening to this, you're like, man, how can I make a difference? Obviously, if you're helping athletes being in the weight room or, you know, your physical therapist and helping people come overcome these injuries, you're doing your job. Salute to you. We really appreciate you. But the next step that we have to do is educate the coaches. So uh, if you know a coach, really talk to them about this uh, as much as you can. So if they ask you questions, what can I do for my kids? What can I do to make my athletes better? Tell them, hey, come play their sports. And that's that's going to be – it sounds so easy. I'll tell you right now, it's going to be a very uphill battle. But if you can get them to buy into that and get a couple of their kids to go do new sports, I think you'll be happy with what you see. Um, and I, I think we only also see only the tip of the iceberg effect. Uh, that's something that I've got highlighted here is that, you know, we overlook the athletic performance that occurs far beyond the sports season. So everyone's just looking at what's happening during the season. Um, but with the long-term athletic development model and program, um, you know, having sport coaches and strength conditioning specialists um, are invaluable to enhancing that performance. And those people shine outside of season. And I tell people about strength conditioning when they ask, you know, what's, what's the hardest part about it? The hardest part about our job is that we usually work with the athletes year round. If we look at college, high school, for sure. Even me, I work with some kids year round, like they don't leave. And that's, you know, ideally that's what we want. Uh, one from a performance perspective, makes our job easier for coaches. But number two, you know, we get to make sure we see them more frequently and we can adjust things as needed to help them excel. And when that happens, that makes us invaluable to their performance because we see them all the time. You know, some, especially at the youth level, you know, they play baseball for so long and then they, they go away for a little bit or they just don't do anything else. They go to their travel sport coach and they come back to that other regular season coach. They've not seen them in a long time. But meanwhile, we've seen them two times a week for 52 weeks. We know a lot about that kid. 
but we don't get any any kind of glory or any kind of thank you, or very rarely do we, uh, especially publicly, from coaches for making kids faster, more explosive, powerful, whatever. They say, oh, Johnny's just more athletic, and that's what we want. But you know, there's no immediate gratification for us as coaches, and that's okay. You got to sign up and understand that's part of it. Um, but making sure that we get this done in a year-round program is ultimately our job. Um, and then, you know, we obviously want to make sure that technique and skill development is taught and supervised by informed, experienced coaches. Um, and then youth coaches should be educated and qualified to the highest standard and work in an environment that's appropriately managed. And this is another issue is that there's a lot of um, parents that step up and coach teams because nobody wants to do it. Um, you know, it's obviously going to be a volunteer position in most cases than not the high school level. That's not so much. They definitely, they're definitely getting paid to some degree. Um, but making sure that we get the most educated and qualified person there, not the one that's got the most connections or happened to do that sport in college, you know, that's, that can be great, but you know, we need the most qualified person to hold that position, uh, and to teach them. And especially if we can get these uh, more qualified and educated coaches on board with a long-term athletic development model, then we can start to make a bigger change. So again, again, coaching education is where it's at. And I think you'll find that really good athletic pros will tell you this. The question is, you know, the thing is that a lot of them don't go on to coach afterwards, especially at the youth level. You know, they might jump into, you know, a minor league or something like that. But, you know, I think this is where we've got to focus coach education, no question. Um, and the next topic here is focusing on fundamental movement skills. Okay, now this is going to be very broad. What are fundamental movement skills? Um, run, jump, throw, carry things, skip, pop, plyometrics, you know, all that kind of stuff um, is incredibly important. There's too many to honestly name. Uh, I'm not going to go through and name them all. But the big thing here is making sure that we start with a wide base of a lot of different fundamental movement skills that kids can do well. And then as they age, we start to actually work on plyometric technique, dynamic movement and warm-ups, um, speed techniques. So we start talking about the difference between um, linear, deceleration, change of direction, agility, you know, reacting to a stimulus. Um, all those come later. You don't have to focus on those early. The big thing is just making sure kids know how to do good quality fundamental movement skills. Um, so, you know, the think of this as like, um, like a cookbook, okay? You've got to start with your basic ingredients first. Milk, eggs, sugar, flour, whatever it is. And then you add the other stuff later. The icing, um, some of the little sweeteners, uh, the, the sprinkles, you know, your special ingredient that nobody knows what that is, that stuff all comes later. But the base is always the base. Regardless of what you're doing, there's always the main thing that makes the main thing the main thing. And so the better we can do that, then we can build on those qualities as they get older. And so I think understanding what those are is incredibly important. So we're going to kind of talk about that. Um, and then understanding that we talk about what these rec techniques and body positions look like. So in terms of skills, there's things that always happen. And so making sure that we understand what these terms are, and this is through the NSCA, and I 100% agree, I don't think many coaches would know what these are. You know, what is the base support? 
what does that look like in an athletic position? Where is the center of mass in the athlete when they're doing certain things? When they're going to get out of a cut, where is their center of mass? They're going into a cut. Where is their center of mass? If they're leaning forward to sprint, where is their center of mass? And I think if we understand that, it makes it easier to understand and coach kids where their body should be in space. The line of force. So as they go to sprint, where is their line of force going through their body? Then that can let you say, hey, this kid's leaning forward too much, or he's too upright, or he's not putting enough force into the ground, or he, you know, his foot's too far in front of him or too far behind him. Again, that stuff is not taught to any youth coach whatsoever. And that's okay. I mean, I understand that that's a lot to teach. We're literally talking about stuff that you know I learned in college. But if we have basic understandings, then it makes it easier to communicate to kids and notice when kids are doing something wrong. Hey, that's not right. Here's how I can address this. Okay. Uh, body control. I think that one's kind of self-explanatory, how they control their body in space, but making sure that their head, their arms or legs are all kind of moving the way they need to when they run. Uh, we all see kids that struggle to like skip and bear crawl. That's body control. You know, if you've got kids that can't do a bear crawl, you need to do more bear crawls in practice, right? That teaches body control. And that ultimately will make them more athletic. And then general posture alignment. You know, that's a little bit more uh, biomechanics related, but I think understanding that, you know, you don't want your head super good forward or back during certain things, or when you're running, you know, your elbows are bent around 90 to 110 degrees, give or take, when you're moving your arms, things like that, I, I think um, is the basics of what you would want to understand. You don't have to go deep dive into that, but just understanding general posture of the body and what it should look like standing, sitting leaning forward for a sprint, things like that. Um, and then, you know, now the important part here is the practical application of the long-term athletic development model. Um, so going through here, I'm going to kind of scroll down. Um, we've already talked about them overemphasizing competition uh, and sports skills over being more athletic. Um, and so we've kind of got some different things here, different movement terminologies that I think all athletes should be able to do. Okay. Um, regardless of what you do, if you're a parent listening, especially with a young kid, ask how much your kid can do some of these things. Um, if you've got middle school kids and you're a coach and you're noticing that some of these are missing, try implementing them now. It, it, it's better than not doing them at all. And then maybe that helps you get more athletic over the course of a season just because they're doing other things. Um, but again, you know, we're talking about for volunteer coaches, this is definitely things that you can do that are very basic, but can go a long way. Um, so we kind of talk about balance, stability, um, different things here, but, you know, understanding that we know what we're saying when they need to bend or we need to stretch or we need to elevate something or raise, um, we need to shake an object or the defender or, you know, even shake an, shake an arm out, shake a leg out, whatever. Uh, understanding how to spin, how to shrug. So the reason to shrug more so is we need to pick something up. You know, you've got to shrug up a little bit to bring something up. You're not just going to raise it up with your elbows. You're going to kind of pick stuff up, think more of like wrestling, but still obviously pushing and pulling different uh, variations and angles, you know, horizontally, vertically being the main two. Uh, understanding how to turn turn your body towards opponent away from opponent um, and then controlling your, your single one leg stepping forward, backward, 
right, left. Essentially think of lunges, crossovers, you know, making sure we understand what those terminologies mean. And then we talk about like some different stuff. This is definitely more gymnastics related, but basically shifting your body part that changes your balance to some degree. So again, spinning is another one, learning how to stop, how to roll, how to twist, how to land, how to swing something, how to fall. Think about that. How do you, how do you fall to make sure you don't get hurt? You know, if you don't want to go like this, uh, you know, you actually want to try to brace yourself, but actually learning how to fall is kind of important, especially if you're talking about very contact driven sports. Um, how to dodge something. So think about dodgeball. Uh, general overall balance, whether that be on your right leg, your left leg, your eyes closed, your hands out in front of you, overhead, different balance positions. Um, and then talking about different athletic positions, you know, just a good overall athletic stance, a single leg athletic stance, um, being able to twist into an athletic stance, turn your body to face somebody, but still be in an athletic stance, like you're trying to accept like a pass, you know, anything like that uh, is good for overall balance. You know, you need to be able to do those things. The next general fundamental fundamental movements, basically trying to take your body and um, to a different place, basically moving yourself. So climbing, galloping, leaping, running, swinging, skipping, shuffles, jumping, hopping, change of directions. All athletes should be able to do those two, four, six, eight, ten movements very well. You know, you shouldn't have to teach a kid how to climb. Right. They should, they should just kind of learn how to do it on their own. That should be a fun movement that happens. Same thing with learning how to swing or skip. And we still got a kid in our facility that we're, he always wants to gallop and not skip. We're trying to keep continuing up. Skip, skip, skip. Skipping is not his thing. But again, he can gallop. He can leap. He can run. He can swing. He can do a lot of these, but he can't skip. So we know we're trying to work on that. Um, and then learning how to control an object in space. So this is kind of where your ball sports really kind of come in handy if you think about this um, or, you know, like using a bat or something like that. But obviously we've got these lumped in different things. You can kick, you can roll something to somebody with, you know, like roll like a, um, like a bowling ball, throw and strike. And then if you want to receive the object, mainly think about pitch and catch, so catching, stopping something, trapping it, um, you know, basically keeping it in a certain area. Um, and then we got you know, what I would call dribbling. So different kind of dribbling skills with your feet, your hands, and a stick. <clears throat> so, you know, obviously that'd be like basketball. Your feet would be like soccer. A stick would be more like uh, hockey or lacrosse. Um, and then, you know, different ways to hit things. So with a bat or a racket or a stick, um, you know, you've got um, – you can do it with your foot in terms of how you punt and kick things. So, you know, all those, that sounds like a lot of movements, right? But if you think about, like, I try to think back a lot of these. I'm like, man, I did a lot of those as a kid by just playing outside, playing different sports. You're going to check all these boxes if you just play different sports. And I think that right there is the key thing to understand is that if you play different sports, you're going to get all these. But if you only play one, you've got to somehow figure out how to develop these. You don't want to teach take your kid outside and just pick up football to be better at wrestling because he didn't play sports, you know, multiple sports up until he's 14. You know, that doesn't make sense. Right. So that's where we're kind of running into issues there. Um, and then we've already kind of talked about this, you know, um, how you could get all these things, uh, things that you need to focus on, I guess, um, balance and stability, fundamental and dynamic warmups and movements, controlling objects, 
general plyometric training, speed and agility training, um, having fun drills and games, um, and then developing strength, endurance, and power. That's kind of the last one. But um, these are kind of how we can classify these fundamental movements and then how to develop them uh, sequentially so that they kind of feed off each other, but we progress the kid and the athlete as needed. Um, I'm going to keep scrolling down here. Obviously, the big thing, very hard to do in team sports, but we want exercises to be based on individuals' background and experience. Um, but that's hard to do with a team. So just make sure you understand you're kind of making things um, built up over time. you got progressions of how to build your program up, even from a young age. So obviously, starting with simple drills versus more complex drills. Build up to the complex drills over time, over years. Slow things down before you speed them up. You know, if you're doing a cone dribbling drill with a soccer ball, just tell the kids, hey, we just want to go slow. So then know how fast you can go. We're going to take our time, get the ball around the cone, control it, keep it in tight, however you want to coach it. Make sure they understand that, hey, this isn't about speed. And then once they get the drill down, then you can work on increasing it. And that's the general progression model. Um, something from static to dynamic. In strength and conditioning world, this is very big. If you want to implement a new exercise, let's use like a abdominal exercise, like a power hold. You would want to do a hold first before you do reps. It's easier to just hold it, keep it in place, than it is to actually move it in different positions. So make sure any drills you can work up, you're talking about teaching athletic uh, stance and things like that. You go from static, just have them hold it. And then you can work repetitions or dynamically getting into that. Um, and then obviously start with things unloaded to loaded. So teaching kids how to do bodyweight squats, split squats, push-ups on their knees, um, excuse me, inverted rows, things like that, planks, anything like that, dead bugs. You can go as far as you can without having to add any kind of load, start, start loading those up. And that can, you know, also obviously start being using different implements in the sport too. Uh, you know, if you have to hold somebody, that's considered load. So just make sure you understand that. Um and then we obviously want to make sure we're developing the best practices, doing the best that we can, the education that we have, um, and trying to pass that on to other coaches so that they can do their best to deliver their best practices. And that's, again, circling back to the coaches being the main focal point that we're after here. And then, um, you know, we got to kind of ask ourselves some general questions. So I'm just going to kind of read this here because I think this is a good way to start. Often volunteer coaches or parents with limited knowledge of teaching and identifying proper movements are in charge of providing the only fundamental movement skills for youth. Limited knowledge is due to lack of priority to provide health and physical education programs at all levels within a school. Therefore, youth sport programs may be the only entity to provide the basis for fundamental movements and physical literacy. The successful long-term athletic development program must provide coach education to implement a sequential pathway and should be able to answer these questions. So this is what we want our long-term athletic development program to be able to answer if we've got a good program. It is what we're doing process, is the process that we're using, I'm sorry, evidence-based. So are we using the things I'm kind of talking about here to make these decisions? Are the best practices implemented to provide proper training, competition, and recovery? Recovery being a big one there. Is exercise selection sequential and progressive? So do, do things get more challenging and difficult over the course of time for these athletes over the course of their career, you know? Um, so if you're doing the same thing all the time, just playing baseball, playing, playing baseball. That's not really sequential and progressive. Okay. 
Um, has coach education been provided in all aspects of athletic development? So are they, um, are we trying to educate the coaches even at the, the team level? You know, are the organizations trying to do this? Uh, does the program provide for individual maturation variables? So physical, mental, emotional changes. Big one here is obviously puberty. Is the program taking this into account of how we're designing and thinking about our programs? You know, as they begin to mature, different things happen. We want to make sure that's available. We're doing our best, especially when you talk about girls and cue angles and things like that. We want to make sure that the training that they're getting is good and of educated in this nature. And is education communication provided for coaches, parents, and athletes? Can we discuss in a civilized manner how we're going to um, go about things in a professional manner and everybody's on the same page and we're all doing the right things? And I think that's a little leery because some people are a little scared to go to others that their kids not gonna lose their kids gonna lose playing time or get kicked off the team or not make the team next year. That's a big issue. Okay, that's something that we've got a big problem with here in the United States. So um, we've kind of got some different age. This is some really, really good uh, tables that we've got here in this article that I really like um, that I'm kind of using as my benchmark here. And when I found this, I thought this was fantastic. I'm definitely going to keep it for myself. Uh, luckily, what I do with a lot of kids, a lot of this is there. But I think if coaches saw this, they'd be like, man, this is actually it's almost like a cheat sheet of what kids should be able to do at certain points of their state of development. And it can kind of keep you on pace uh, if you're a teacher or a you know, PE teacher or even a uh, coach. Um, you know, things you can do with your kids that don't look like the sport that um, can actually maybe help the sport. Um, but the big thing here, I'm going to break these down with some ages, just either just general in nature. So just, you know, kind of hang with me here. The ages three and four, we're working on balance, stability, fundamental and dynamic movement, object control. This is just playing and having fun. Go outside with your kid, do some stuff, whatever they want to do, make sure they're obviously safe. And then they'll get that balance, stability, moving around, um, kicking balls, throwing things, climbing, all that, that's all going to kind of get checked. Next one's going to be five and six years old. You're going to still make sure that those skills from the previous two years are still there. Um, this is where you can actually add some plyometrics or speed agility. Now, I will say this. I don't work with kids until they're 10 years old. But at this age, this is when if a kid wants to do something fun, you can throw the ladder out. You can get some cones out and just run around and do circles. You can... Um, pretend to race them in like little sprints, change the direction stuff, um, things like that. Again, I don't, I would not make your kids do this. Don't make athletes do this, but if they're wanting to go outside and play and have something kind of structured, that's how you can kind of structure it. You can teach them to jump on things and jump off things. And that's all totally fine. Um, seven and eight, again, keep kind of working on those above skills. And this is where you can kind of start to add a little bit of strength. Um, and even some like endurance. So, you know, if you want to try to say, hey, let's see if we can do 200 meter run today or you know, 400 meter run today, that's perfectly acceptable. Um, if you want to actually start doing developing strength, so teaching gobble box squats, lunges, inverted rows, push ups, adding some dumbbells, cables, and bands, all totally okay. Again, the key thing here, one day a week, two days a week at the absolute most. 
do it till they have fun and then stop. Make sure it's only when they want to do it. It doesn't need like you know a, a periodized plan at seven, eight years old. Okay, just saying that adding these things is okay. There's nothing that's harmful that's going to happen. Um, and then you know you can get that to happen in your program. Great. If not, not the end of the world. But be be aware that this is something that kids kind of dabble understand. And we get requests all the time for eight, nine year olds to do the above things that we're kind of talking about. Uh, we just find that we need from a mental maturity standpoint, 10 seems to be a good mark, bookmark for us. And then ages nine through, nine through 14, I'm sorry, develop all the above skills, develop them, develop them, develop them. And that's when you can actually really start actually doing some periodization, implementing more barbell stuff. You know, that's where that stuff really has to kind of come in. Um, I'm not going to go through all these, um, charts here there's a lot of different things like i said i'm going to link this if you want it um, and you'll be able to find it the big thing here is going to be um i want to break these down for you and kind of how they're organized so there's a thing here balance and stability and it's got a bunch of different uh we'll call them exercises or activities and it basically has got a chart across um from ages three to fourteen so and it's going to just say you, when you introduce it or practice the skill, when the skill ideally should be competent by. So the kids should be able to, be able to do, let's say, um, understand what, um, let's say, swing their arm like they're running. Example on this chart, at ages three and four is kind of when you start to implement or, you know, introduce this. That's perfect, but when they run, hey, Johnny, bring your hands up while you run, okay, something like that. And then hopefully by the time they're in kindergarten, five years old, they're competent. They understand that, hey, my arms move like this when I run. And then when you're in first, second grade, you can review that running technique. So it's got an R here. You can review that in speed and agility or, you know, however, whenever it's reintroduced with running the shuttle, that's how your arms go. Okay, so that's kind of just how this works. We've got different activities. We've also got one here on um, balance and, or I'm sorry, on dynamic movement. We've got one here on object control. So that we kind of talked about the soccer, baseball kind of thing. Uh, plyometrics, it's got a bunch of different plyometrics. And when is the best to practice and implement some of these? This is what I really like for my job. I'm really interested to see what some of these are, what can some kids do and can't do at certain ages, and what should they be able to do, and what do we need to develop. Um, and then we've got speed and agility movements. Again, we, these are kind of broken down, acceleration, deceleration, backpedaling, all really good stuff. And then we've got lateral movement. So, you know, being able to cut and change direction, those are all good. And then we've got some different fun drills. Uh, but when these these are good drills or games that you can implement um, to kind of develop some of those qualities that we've talked about, but implement them in a game perspective, and then we can check a lot of boxes with that and be like, oh, I wonder if we've done this, this, this. You're probably going to get some of these there. But, you know, obviously some of these are kind of pretty normal, chasing each other, um, learning to chase each other from prone, not so on your belly, on your back, having to roll over. Uh, knee tag, great game for kids uh, to really teach themselves how to get out of the way, but also reach for stuff, get limbs involved, really good game. I like um, any kind of ball dropping where they're having to chase it or go get it or come towards it, anything like that. Uh, reactionary-based drills off the wall. So, 
you know, you stay behind them, throw a wall to ball, and they've got to react and go get it. Um, again, you could do that as well, just throwing the ball in front of them in different directions and making them run and go field it or kick it back to you. Um, dodgeball, obvious game, everybody plays that right. Um, and then any other kind of games you can think of, tug of war. Um, we like to do knockout. We like to play uh, some little football outside. We would do all those things, but things that are outside their wheelhouse. Um, and then we've got a lot of things here for you know, your strength, endurance, and power. They've got a lot of different exercises. I really like this as well. It kind of breaks things down how that when they should be able to be introduced to lunges and push-ups and pull-ups and bodyweight squats, um, clean, jerk, snatch, um, you know, dumbbell benching, barbell benching, um, squats, front squats, lunges. I don't know right there. I said that, you know, overhead press, all that kind of stuff. Um, they're all kind of right there around the same age, but obviously there are some different ones for different ages, but you know, these aren't set in stone, but I think it's cool that you can show, you could even use this as a resource to talk to parents. Hey, this is how young we can teach them to do a, right here it says pull down. So I'm assuming that's a lot pull down and saying that we can teach them that eight or nine years old. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. You can teach a kid how to do a lap pull down at eight or nine years old, as long as it's monitored, supervised. And the kid is mentally ready. You're sure okay with it, but here you got something that's, you know, provided by the NFCA and had some research done on it that you're going to be okay to do that. So that's kind of cool. That's why I want to kind of provide that. I'm not going to go through all these. Um, but kind of in summary here, that the future of this long-term athletic development uh, depends on education involvement of parents, coaches, sport programs, um, and an educational-based system. Regardless of who involved, priority must be on what is best for the athlete. At present, the best coaches work with the most advanced athletes, while volunteers coach the most critical areas during critical periods of development. Often, the focus of programs and coaches is to promote winning rather than developing proper technical and tactical skills. So that's a really good point. And like I talked about that earlier, was that usually the best coaches work with the best athletes. That's it. The travel level, that's it high school level, that's at the professional level, the college level. Volunteers are the ones working with the kids at five, six, seven, eight years old. They've got the most critical and influential time of kids to help them excel for the long run. Think of this as an investment. Think of this as your stocks. When you start early, that money becomes worth the most money because it's been invested the longest. So those early investments are usually sometimes your most important investments. Same thing goes with sports and strength conditioning, performance, what have you. Okay, so you're a volunteer, parent, coach, you know, do your best to do some self-education before you go and coach kids. Um, think about this. Talk to sports performance professionals. Um, if you're listening to this, you're obviously on the right track. I appreciate that. Um, Go check this article that I'm going to link in the bottom. I think that will help you. And I think um, I'm just going to kind of read this out to kind of finish it off. But it says, coaches at all levels must be trained and supported so proper skills can be taught and corrections, if necessary, can be made. Frequently, adult programs are imposed on young athletes. That's very true and a big issue. Thus, the basic components of physical literacy or athleticism are not implemented in a sequential manner. As a result, many athletes never reach their optimal performance levels because of the above things we just talked about. The results of these inequities create poor skill movements due to lack of proper development, poor skill development, 
with poor teaching skills and poor sports skill development because of excessive competition. Amen to that. That paragraph right there is money. And then the dilemma associated with injury rates in turn reduces the individual's physical, general physical fitness level, which leads to the possibility of increased obesity and other health-related problems. A successful long-term athletic development program must implement and become committed to coach education at all levels. It should be coach-driven, athlete-focused, and attempt to create a family concept and include proper training, competition, and even a recovery plan. Also, it must allow for individual physical, mental, and emotional development. Typically, we fear what we do not understand. We distrust what is different. Change is inevitable. Progress is optional. That's a really good paragraph, too. Um, knowing that in this podcast episode has been a good, what are we at here? I don't even see my time. Uh, a good hour. Okay. What we can take from this is that clearly we all know, if you're listening to this, you know that specificity is not the ideal way to develop athletes. We need more coaches, understanding of long-term athletic development. We need more parents understanding what long-term athletic development is. I, I think if you had to pull parents, hey, do you know what LTAD is or long-term athletic development? Do you know what that is? We're, we're not probably in a good spot. 10, 20%, maybe at the most. That might be generous. I think the more we get parents to understand that, playing multiple sports, and I talked about this with Mike Robertson recently in an IFAS U call, but not also just playing multiple sports, it, following the seasonality of sports. So when volleyball season is in, you're not playing softball. You're not playing basketball. You're playing volleyball because it's volleyball season. The other sport has to drop to the side. You can't double down, double your workload, double your exposures. We're not even talking about, even talk about exposures, but doubling your exposures is going to not do you any good in terms of injury risk. Okay. Nothing can truly prevent injury. Let's, let's get that straight. But we can put ourselves at less risk or decrease the risk. And that's why ideally what we try to do is strength conditioning and performance professionals. But don't just double down on your sports. Face them. So as long as your parents understand that, coaches are understanding, hey, at five, six, seven, eight years old, we need basic fundamental movements. We got to skip and hop and kick and carry and climb and change direction and, you know, carry things and all the all those fun stuff. Get your kids out there having fun move them around a lot. Don't just do 40 soccer drills with just kicking the ball. Find something else to implement with that time. Obviously, you got to teach them how to kick a ball a little bit to play soccer, but every drill doesn't need to be with the soccer ball at that age. You just implement the soccer ball to have the fun, so they kind of learn the game and learn the basics. But, you know, you can do all those other things um, and have good success. You, know, you can implement a small dodgeball game and get better at soccer at seven years old. You're learning how to change direction and you know decelerate and throw things, and then you're good. That all carries over to the sport, especially at that age. So um, I think the more we can get that on board too is that parents come in um, educated, coaches come in more educated. We can do more for the athletes, and that's ultimately where it starts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent yet, 
So I, I can't really speak on that from a parent perspective, but I can tell you that I, I do know that what I am a parent, that this is how I'm going to try to make my change. Um, you know, I'm probably not going to coach, but I am going to do my best to make sure that, you know, my kids get access to all these kind of different things when they're a kid. And then if they go on to be an awesome athlete, great. If not, then it is what it is. Okay. So that's what we've got today for the long-term athletic development episode of this podcast. It was a long one. It was deep. There was a lot of things here. Um, and I think at the end of the day, hopefully you took some really good stuff away from this. Uh, if you're interested in long-term athletic development, um, definitely feel free connecting with me. I love talking about this. This is something I'm super passionate about, uh, trying to help kids just because I see it a lot in my business and I feel so bad for some of these kids that they just can't do some of these basic athletic things yet they're, they're aspiring to be a collegiate athlete. And, you know, I, if I can do anything I can to help them, then I want that. Um, and ultimately I just don't like getting kids injured. You know, I don't like having kids come to me because of rotator cuff, knee, hip, shoulder, ankle, whatever. It shouldn't be that way. They should be coming to me because they just want to get stronger, more powerful, more explosive on that level, which is great. But I just feel bad that my my business is generating revenue off of injured athletes when it could be, um, I don't want to say 100% preventable, but I could have a lot less if we just had more long-term athletic development focused training models implemented earlier. Kids play more sports uh, rather than specializing, and we'd be in a good spot. So that is today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Um, again, feel free to connect with me on this matter. Love to talk about it. Um, if you're somebody that's passionate about long-term athletic development um, or you know a coach, you know a parent, you know somebody that can listen to this podcast and hopefully take something away, do me a favor, uh, give it a share let people know about this so that we can ultimately help these kids um, and see better athletes in the long run. And the last thing I'll ask for you, if you are listening to this uh, on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, anything like that, do me a favor, click a like, uh, follow the, the podcast, give me a rating. Um, all that stuff helps uh, this reach more people that are like you. Um, and if you also, if you really want to, you can also find this on YouTube. So you can hand over to YouTube, just type in my name, Brandon Smitley or B Smitley hit the subscribe button. And you can also watch it as well. Um, this episode didn't have anything special in terms of a visual component, but my lives that are on Saturday, or I'm sorry, on Sundays, the first Sunday of every month, those do, those are kind of almost like a lecture based series. So if you want to check that out, you can check that out on October 1st at 1 PM Eastern daylight time. I'll be doing an episode on single leg training for athletes. So swing in and check that out at 1 PM Eastern daylight time. If you can't make it, don't worry. It will end up on YouTube and on the podcast through your Spotify, Apple, iTunes, all that kind of stuff. So again, thanks for tuning in the episode. Looking forward to catching you at the next episode, which will be the single leg training for athletes. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Thirst for More podcast. Make sure you give us a follow on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere else you like to consume 
your podcast. You can also check us out on YouTube at The Smitley, where you'll find clips and lots of educational-based material for strength and conditioning and exercise science. You can also make sure you give me a follow on Instagram at The Smitley or at Team Thirst, which is my gym Instagram page. For any more future updates on episode to come, you can make sure you follow me there. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you at the next episode.